Uh, so the Bible reading is Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 28. It's a big one. Uh, so, yeah, if you have devices or paper Bibles, uh, I'll give you a moment. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption." The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence." Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thanks, Nath. Yes, how exciting. I can see it in your eyes. After that passage, you're like, oh, this is completely awesome. I'm so excited. It's totally accessible. I understand everything that was just read basically no explanation needed. Let's get into it. Is that how we're feeling? <laughs> You're all like glazed over. I can see like some of you are going, should have, should have got the coffee. Should have got the coffee. Maybe something stronger. I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. Um, 
for those of you who don't know, in my, I was going to say in my spare time, but it's kind of my full time now, um, I'm a bit of a historian, currently doing my PhD in history, researching unmarried Christian women who are involved in social justice activism um, that was motivated by their faith, by their Christian faith, but who have been completely relegated in history, totally unrecognised because they weren't wives and mothers or because their work didn't kind of fit into the box and the paradigm of the church at the time. So I'm constantly thinking about these women. And um, one of the women that I, that I study, um, that I'm doing a case study on, was actually from Sydney. She's one of the founders of the RSPCA here in New South Wales, responsible for a whole bunch of our humane laws. Um, she was also part of the suffrage movement that got women the vote. Um, she was yeah, involved in a whole bunch of, uh, of things, including um, protection for vulnerable kids as well. Quite an amazing woman. And sometimes when I'm walking around Sydney, I look up at the dates on some of the old buildings and I'm like, oh yeah, Francis might have gone there. Francis might have been in this place. And today I was thinking, as I, as I thought about this passage, I was kind of thinking about the fact that um, in this passage... The author is trying to describe something that is kind of inexplicable. It's like outside the realm of experience of the people that they're writing to. And so in order to try to explain it, they're kind of catching at knowledge that the people currently have of things they currently experience or the ways they currently understand how to, how to approach God in order to explain this new thing that is just like totally outside the box for them. And so I was thinking to myself, how would I describe the internet to Francis Levy? How would I describe the internet to this woman who was born in 1831 and died in 1924? She was a contemporary of Alexander Graham Bell. Like, Bell inaugurated the first telephone company in 1885 when she was just starting her justice work. She's a bit of a legend. She only started most of her work in her 50s. Um, But she went into well into her 90s. And I'm thinking, how would you describe the internet to her? Does anyone have any ideas? Like, yeah? Yeah. A book in a library that everyone can access from home. Is this magic? (laughs) What is this? I was, has anyone got any other ideas? I don't think, there's no right answer here. I'm just curious. Wowzers. How? Where do I find this information? Write it down. (laughs) I was thinking like, well, it's kind of like the telegraph, right? You know how you could send a telegram back in the day? It's like um, where you could get a telegram with any piece of information that you you wanted whatsoever in the world and you could get that telegram instantly and it would be yours to keep. You could have it right there as much as you needed. You could access that telegram whenever. I was just trying... But in order to explain the internet, I have to start with knowledge that she already has, right? Because it's so far outside of her experience. You can't just start going, oh, well, no worries. Well, you start with the Wi-Fi. You have to have Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi? <laughs> what is Wi-Fi? Oh, it's how your computer connects to the computer? <laughs> oh, oh, 
the, the, every step you take, you go, oh, they don't have that yet. Oh, they don't get that yet. I have to actually go back and explain that. Um, a couple of other examples. Um, actually, I'll stop here for a second. I, I just want to say, before I use this example, I mean no disrespect. I understand that this could come across the wrong way, but I want to be very clear that I mean no disrespect. Um, is anyone familiar with these? Does anyone remember these? Windows for dummies. A dummies guide is like for someone who, say, has never encountered the internet um, or who doesn't understand how to use a Windows computer or whatever the case might be, just walking them through step by step with really familiar terms how to do these things. And there was dummies guides for everything. You don't really see them anymore. They are still out there. But there were dummies guides for everything. This is one of my favourites. <laughs> Following instructions for dummies. I'm like, ooh, that is already a hard book. If that is your struggle, is this the best medium for you? I'm not really sure. Now, in the Old Testament, you've got a bunch of people who have um, been told to worship God, right? So if we think about the Hebrew people when they come out of Egypt um, and they're going to the promised land and all that kind of thing, they've been told it's time to worship God, the one true God. And how you worship God is different to the other gods because this God is completely different to the other gods. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. So what does that look like? How do you begin to explain to someone what it looks like to worship the one true God of the universe? who is not like any other God, and yet who invites you to come near and, and to be known by them. What you actually have to do is start with knowledge that is known, yeah? And so what they do in the Old Testament is they actually start with a system that um, is really well known to anyone in the ancient world. You see, regardless of what culture you're from in the ancient world, um, there was a predictable pattern to life and worship. There was a predictable pattern to how life, life went. And that didn't mean that there was sort of guaranteed outcomes. It didn't mean that you were guaranteed that your crop was going to be a bumper crop every year or that the person you loved was going to fall in love with you. There were no guarantees, but there were predictable and certain things that you could do to try and control your life a little bit. So, for example, if you had a problem or something that was going wrong in your life, you could approach a priest or a diviner of your God and get information from them about what can I do to make my God happy. Or if you wanted to approach the God um, to ensure that everything was going to go well in your life, um, to worship the God, to make sure that you are paying homage to the ones who are in control, you go through the priests and then the priests would do particular things that would allow you to be heard by the God or to have the favor of the gods. And those things were mostly involving sacrifices and rituals. So you've got a bunch of people who are being told that the worship of God is going to be totally different from now on, but they actually only have a particular framework, a very particular framework by which they understand how you even approach God and how you have relationship with a God. And that that um, system is a system of priests and sacrifices. And so it's in that context that the Hebrew people are given instructions on how to worship Yahweh. Um, 
And so the Old, the Old Testament sacrificial model, or what we've got in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, is based on that model of sacrifice and priesthood with some adjustments to make it appropriate for Yahweh. Because even though that was all they had ever known, and this is the system that they got, there was some stuff about that, that this God was like, nah, that there's nothing in that that is attractive to me. So for example, um, the God of the Hebrews does something that is quite unknown in the ancient world in that area, that he, pre he prohibits, or God prohibits human sacrifice. That is a total no-no for this God because human life is too valuable to be sacrificed. Um, there's no economic exploitation of the people by the priests or the rulers. There are rules against that. And the sacrificial system is set up in, a, in such a way that no matter how poor you are, you will be able to approach the priest. You'll be able to approach God through the priest with kind of like a tiered system of sacrifices. Um, and there's also no exploitation of the priests by the people. So, for example, there's requirements that certain offerings and things are done so that the priests don't starve to death as they're serving the people. Um, and there's a limit to, to waste and violence and things like that. Now, we read it, and it's not the most attractive system in the world. There's a hell of a lot that we read uh, in the Levitical law in the Old Testament that is pretty unattractive. Like we've, just, we've got to own that. We cannot sugarcoat that. There's a lot that's really ugly and unattractive from our perspective. And part of that is because they're operating within a particular mindset and pushing it as far as they understood how to go at the time. Does that make sense so far? But that doesn't mean that that system of priests and sacrifice is the way that things were always meant to be. It just means that at that point in history, that's what they understood about what it looks like to approach God and how we get access to God and make God happy. But it doesn't mean it's the way things are always meant to be. Let me give you a bit of an example. Does anyone recognize what this is? What is it? The Opera House? Yeah. It's a beautiful photograph of the Opera House. Just lovely. Taken from um, the top of the Harbour Bridge. Beautiful photograph of the Opera House. Isn't it great? Beautiful. Exactly what the Opera House looks like. Is that right? Not exactly? What is it actually? Sorry? No, no, what is that? It's a Lego model of the Opera House. Now you look at that and you can recognize it's the Opera House, right? Some of you are like, not really, no, not well. I did, um, just full disclosure, I asked Bront's dad, my future father-in-law, if he could take a model of his, uh, a photo of his model of the opera house for me. He sent it through and he goes, oh, it's not looking very good right now. I have a suspicion the nephews have been playing with it. <sighs> but you can still mostly tell what it is, right? It's not a direct approximation of the Opera House, but you get an idea of it. And when you're using Lego and Lego tiles and Lego blocks, that's about as close to the image of the Opera House as you can get. It's recognizable, you know what it's pointing to, but it's not like you would want to go to a concert in that thing. I'm not sure about the acoustics, right? I'm not sure that I would want to go to a production of the Sydney Theatre Company 
in that Lego model. I don't know that that would work out very well. Do you want to perform in that? No, not so much. No, no. Musos, do you want to perform in that? Do you think your dad would be happy? Yeah. It's not. It points towards something and it makes it a little bit recognisable, yeah? But it's definitely not the real thing. Now, here's what I kind of want us to understand. The writer of the Hebrews is doing kind of the same thing. Now, in the Old Testament, um, when the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, are coming out of Egypt and they're going into the Promised Land and they're learning a new way of worship and a new way of approaching Yahweh, uh, the author uses a system that they understand, an organization and way of approaching God that they understand in order to explain how they will have relationship with God, but with some modifications that show the value of all human life, for example. Yeah? What the writer to the Hebrews is doing is doing the same thing, but taking it to the next level in light of what Jesus has done. You see, these people still, all these centuries later, have only ever known what it is to approach God through the sacrificial system. And in their understanding, you can't access God without the shedding of blood. Like, that's not actually possible. Because if I want to approach God, I actually have to come to the priest and make a sacrifice. Not only that, but access to God is incredibly strictly controlled. This is, kind of, this is a 3D model um, of what the temple was like at the time of Jesus. So this is the second temple. Um, and you might have heard talk about this at some, point, at some points, but I just want to show you a couple of things about it. Um, this is where, this area in here, is where the courts of the temple begin. So this is known as the court of the Gentiles. Is anyone here ethnically Jewish at all? No? Okay, so we're all in the same boat. For us, this outer courtyard, this is as far as we get to go because we're all Gentiles. We're non-Jews. So that outer court, that's as far as we get to go, as close as we can come to approaching Yahweh. But if you are a Hebrew person, you can go, I'll show it this way, you can go into the next court. You can go through these little gates and into the next court, which is, court, which is called uh, the court of Israel. So if you're an Israelite, you can go through there. Or some, uh, and then, uh, sorry, it should be called the court, of, um, the court of the women. Sorry, I forgot one of the layers. So for those of us that, I, that, that are female or identify as female, um, that next court just inside those walls, that's as far as we can go. Because we're Hebrew, hopefully, in this system. And so it gets us through the first court into the second one, but that we're female, so we can't go any further. But if you're a Jewish man, yes, you get to go through door number three. And you can then go into the court of Israel as a Jewish man. You get greater access. But if you are one of the priests, you can go through the next court. And that's where you actually begin to enter the holy place, where, where sacrifices are made and where all the theater is done that people can look down on, but they can't actually access and see. But the most holy place, we've got the arrow going into those massive, massive big doors. Part, just so you know, this is um, obviously a scale model. That's not... <laughs> this, is not this is not Gulliver's version of the temple. There we go. 
Um, but if, uh, if you, to get into the most holy place, which was symbolic of the very presence of God, where God dwelt amongst the people, to get in there, you not only had to be Jewish, you not only had to be a man, you not only had to be a priest, you had to be the high priest. And even then, you could only go in there one day a year. How's that for access to God? Woo! No worries. That is ticketed access, my friend. That is, you have to have a very special wristband to get in there. Because there's all of these levels of access that you have to go through. Now, in Hebrews 9, and a bunch of different places in Hebrews, when they're talking about access to the most holy place, when they're talking about the sacrificial system, this is what they're talking about. And this is what is so mind-blowing for the people at the time. You see, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 9 and what they've said earlier in Hebrews 6 and a bunch of other places as well, is that what Jesus has done is that he has gone into the most holy place. He's done it once, not because it was his turn that one day, that one year. He's done it once in such a way, offering a sacrifice in such a way that he has completely kicked the doors in so now every single one of us can go in to the most holy place at any time, at any moment. Even if you're a Gentile, even if you're a woman, even if you're queer, even if you're whatever the case might be, you have access to the most holy place. You know, sometimes we talk about verses in the Bible that uh, get weaponized against us um, or that are used in such a way to create more of these kind of corridors of exclusion. And I know Joel, I wasn't here last week, but Joel spoke last week about um, the two ways to live booklet. Um, I, used to, I used to use Bridge to Life myself. It was another one of those follow these four steps and you get instant access to the most holy place. Um, you are a special person. But one of the things that those kind of booklets did is they actually base that access still on a little bit of a threat. Because they use verses like Hebrews 9, verse 27, which says this, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. You are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Are you ready? There are two ways to live. Which way will you choose? And the point that's being argued in some of those tracts is that because you are a person who is so marred by sin, who is so completely worthless, who is so broken in the sight of God, who is so completely fallen, you are under the judgment of God. And because God is a just God, when you die, that's when death really begins for you. That's the point. That's what's trying to be argued. That when you die, you will face a judgment that will account for all of your sin and all of your unworthiness and all of your brokenness and every naughty thought that you have ever had because you are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. 
Now, most of those traps will turn that on its head by saying, but don't worry, Jesus has died for you to take the judgment, the penalty that was intended for you, you you dirty, rotten, no good person. Um, Don't worry, don't worry, he's taken that. You're still dirty, rotten, but now we're going to give you a wristband. You're going to be okay. Um, So what's going to happen is when you give your life to Jesus, um, he will kind of, he, you will experience spiritually his death for you. So you will have figuratively died spiritually and now you will be alive to God in Christ Jesus. That was a bit of a Galatians reference. I'm dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you kind of spiritually die, the judgment is dealt with and now you're alive to God and you can have access to God. Um, that's the way those tracts kind of went. Yeah. So... If you will pray this prayer now and repeat after me, you too can right now die to yourself by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus and accept his life so that when you actually die physically, you will escape judgment and have access into the presence of God. All right, so I see that hand. I see that hand. You've actually got to say at least two to three first before you actually see a hand. (laughs) Tips from a former Pentecostal pastor. Once people know, that's also why you have to say, bow your head and close your eyes, okay? So no one's looking. And then everyone's like, oh, I want to put my hand up, but what if I'm the only one? <laughs> I see that hand. I didn't say the hand was up. I just said I can see that that, that is a hand. <laughs> and I see that hand too. Sorry, I digress. Here's the thing. And again, I am not trying to minimize what Jesus did. I actually want to try to explain a little bit greater just how magnificent and awesome it is what Jesus did. But here's the thing about that verse and what this passage is saying. There's a whole bunch of metaphor it uses. But here's what it's saying in that particular bit. It says this. It was necessary for the copies of... I'm reading from verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices... But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, okay? So the author is saying, in kind of our little model of the sacrificial system and what access to God looks like, in our model of what it means to get into the presence of God, in the system of thinking that we had, you could only get access through the shedding of blood so that you would understand that you couldn't just waltz right in there But then the author says, but the heavenly things, the actual reality, and in this sense he's talking about the presence of God, he or she, that's one of the reasons, sidebar, um, one of the theories that we don't actually get the name of the author of Hebrews is that it might have been a woman, and to actually name a woman as the author would detract from the authority of the book, so that's one of the most prominent theories uh, about why the author of Hebrews might not have been named Um, So if I use a masculine pronoun for the author of Hebrews, I'm going to dial that back because we don't know. Um, So the author is saying, yes, for the model, in that limited understanding that we had at the time, when we're trying to explain the internet through telegrams and horse and carts and whatever else we have, we use blood sacrifices in order to sort of explain access and all these kind of things. But the author says... When it comes to the reality of, presence, of the presence of God, of being in relationship with God and having access to God, 
none of those things are actually necessary anymore. It says, Christ did not enter a sanctuary that was made with human hands. He didn't enter an actual temple. He didn't go through a series of courts. The author says, Christ entered heaven itself. You see, this was a way of understanding that God is so far removed from us, is beyond our comprehension, is beyond our understanding. And so there was a series of courts to help people to understand that. But we took the model for the truth. We took the model for the truth. And we thought that that meant that only special people have access to God. And some people, because of their race or because of their gender or because of their physical disability, could not ever at any point access God. We took the model for the real thing. And we put boundaries and hurdles around relationship with God that were never, ever meant to be there. Christ has not entered a copy. Christ has entered heaven itself to appear for us in God's presence. And the author says, Christ doesn't have to do this again and again and again because that's the old model that every time you want to approach God, you have to make a sacrifice. There has to be shedding of blood. No, that's the old model. Christ went into the presence of God once. And then it says uh, in verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So you've got to keep reading the sentences. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. What the author is saying is that now, because of what Jesus has done, judgment does not await you. Judgment does not await you anymore. If you have put your trust in Jesus and understood what Jesus has done for you, have understood that Jesus has made way the access to the Father, has made access to the very presence of God, you will understand that there is no more judgment waiting for you because Christ has dealt with that judgment once and for all. So much of our understanding about God, so much of our understanding about access to God and our thoughts about death and eternity is based on fear. Because we think we've got to be afraid of what happens when we encounter God. Because this whole system is set up as incredible theater. It really is spectacular theater. When you go through the descriptions of the sacrifices and the clothes that they wore and the things that they would do, it's amazing theater. But we don't have to go through that anymore because Jesus has removed that to make our access to God for all time, without fear of judgment, without fear of that eternal death and damnation. Uh, one of my favorite verses is this one from Hebrews six nineteen. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. For some of you might have heard me a few weeks ago tell a story about one time when I was scuba diving Um, And it was a night, like I was on kind of a cruise that we were doing a whole bunch of of dives. And this particular night, um, we'd thrown, the crew had thrown the anchor over the side, but hadn't actually checked if it caught on anything. 
halfway through the night realised we were drifting uh, in the Great Barrier Reef, dragging an anchor. Yeah, yeah, not a good time. Had to send down divers to actually find the anchor, discovered that it had dropped right on top of a massive coral bombie. And they had to actually physically pick up the anchor and dive with it down to the floor of the ocean and bury it in the floor of the ocean so that it would hold the boat firm and we wouldn't drift away. I always think about that when I think about this verse. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. And I think about Jesus taking my life and anchoring my life in the very presence of God, saying, you belong here and you actually never, ever have to leave. Your life is anchored in my very throne room, in my very presence. This is where you belong. And if you read before that to get the context, you'll know that this hope that's an anchor for our soul is all of the good things that God has promised us. Eternal life relationship with God, restoration of our relationships with one another, all the things that God has promised are fulfilled in Jesus. And to guarantee that, Jesus has anchored our very lives in the throne room of God. And then it says, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. When it's talking about the curtain, it's talking about a massive curtain that was there in, that separated the most holy place from the rest of the courts. And if you know the gospel story, you'll know that it talks about how when Jesus died, that the temple, the curtain in the temple was actually ripped. And it's the weirdest thing. Does anyone know the weird detail that's given about the ripping of the curtain? It's ripped from the top to the bottom. How weird is that? There's this symbolic statement that our access to God was denied because there were so many gates stopping us to get into the very presence of God. And God symbolically rips the curtain and kicks in the doors and says, come on in, access is yours. And we have that hope firm and secure to such an extent that we can, we can place our very lives on it. We can anchor our very lives on it. Um, How to wrap this up for you guys. The simple truth of what this passage is saying, I know it sounds really complex and hopefully I've tried to make make a little bit of sense for you. But the simple truth of this passage is that Jesus has done away with all of the sacrifices and the rituals and the gates and the hoops that you had to jump through to try and get access to God. All the things that we thought were necessary for God to smile on us. All the things that we thought were necessary for us to be able to have relationship with God. Christ has done away from away with that because he has fully fulfilled everything that was required. And that means right now, something that's maybe a little bit of a challenge for some of us in our community. It means that we have to start aligning our thinking about ourselves to the way that God thinks about us. Because some of us have a habit of thinking about ourselves as excluded people. Some of us have a habit of thinking about ourselves as people who are unworthy, as people who are under judgment, as people who have reason to fear. 
as people who, if we let the mask slip, if we let too much be known, our access will be denied in so many ways. We actually have to stop thinking that way about ourselves and begin that process of learning to think about ourselves the way that God thinks about us. You see, the truth about us is this. God always intended for you to have full access to God's very presence. God always intended that. It was never God's intention that there would be gates that barred you from getting, to, getting through to God. It was always God's intention that you would know that you are fully and unconditionally loved. And what Christ has done is literally and symbolically in all of the ways removed all those barriers to access so that we can, as the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly into the throne room of grace and know that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't have to do it with our heads down low, hoping that no one notices us. We don't have to do it shuffling in, feeling completely out of place and hoping that no one notices because we're going to get kicked out. The writer of Hebrews says that you can come boldly into the throne room of God. Exactly as you are, fully yourself, you can come into the very presence of God. And as you come into the very presence of God, as you live life fully yourself, you have no reason to fear judgment. You have no reason to fear exclusion because what you're going to find is grace and mercy, the gentleness that will help you grow into who you're fully meant to be, the gentleness and the grace and the companionship of the Holy Spirit to become the kind of person who not only enjoys access yourself, but teaches other people to walk into that access as well. And that's kind of when I want to finish today with two big ideas for you. This passage is using theological language. It's using analogy to describe something that's a little bit indescribable. When I was a kid, I know this is going to shock you. When I was a kid, I really didn't like to play with dolls. I know, shocking truth. You weren't ready for it, were you? But I really loved to play with matchbox cars, and I really, really loved to play with Lego. I was also really into history even then. It's a vintage fire engine for you. Now, our nephews know that there is a shelf in our house that has the matchbox cars on them. And as soon as they come into our place, they go straight for the shelf where the matchbox cars are. Because I've put them there specifically for Ezzy and Toby, because they love playing with my matchbox cars so that they know they can go straight to there and play with them. And they love it, they have so much fun. Especially when they turn Aunty Karen into all of their jumps. But anyway, the thing is, right, when Ezra is 18, I'm really hoping, really hoping, that he's not still just playing with my matchbox cars, but that he's actually learnt to drive a real car. That he's not still playing with the replica 
He's not still playing with this, the representation, but that he's actually playing with and experiencing the real thing and getting to know that. And my question for you is, how are you going with your relationship with God and your understanding of the access that you have to the very presence of God? I know that a lot of us here are asking questions all the time about what it means to know God and to be in relationship with God and, uh, and about what the Bible means and says in all sorts of passages and some of the things that we've been taught and whether we still have to understand things that way. But here is my challenge and encouragement to you. As you go through that process of figuring out what your relationship with God looks like now and what it looks like for you to be known by God and loved by God and for you to know God and maybe dare to love God again. Maybe dare to believe again that God loves you. My challenge for you is to remember this, that the place that you start from, the starting line where you begin, it's a place of love. It's a place without fear. It is a place without judgment. Because all of that judgment and that fear and those reasons for you to hesitate before approaching God and to hesitate before bringing your full self to people, all those reasons to wonder if who you are is okay and if God will ever accept you, all of those, they are behind you. They have been dealt with, dealt with by Jesus. Because Jesus died once to take away the sin of us all. He has died once to face the judgment of God that has been removed from us. And now what awaits us in the final verse of this passage is the anticipation of salvation. So the place where I begin, this is really how I try to live my life, and it's a challenge some days. The place where I begin is a place where I know that I start loved. I start fully accepted by God. Because some of us, we live our lives thinking that, okay, I've accepted Jesus, or I've come to whatever point in my life, or I've just been born. You might not have been aware of that, but it happened. And we think, okay, so now that I'm at this point, I'm going to start moving forward, and hopefully at some point, I will know what love is. Hopefully at some point I will be worthy enough to be able to receive and to give love. Hopefully at some point I will come to peace with who I am. Hopefully at some point in my life I will find love. I will become lovable. I will become worthy. This passage says you're not on a journey to become worthy. You're not on a journey to be loved. You're not on a journey to be accepted. That is the place where you start. And now in your relationship with God, there are no holds barred. You can walk forward in the confidence that you are loved, that you are fully accepted, that you are entirely valued, that you are totally significant. That is your starting point. Your journey now is not for that to become a reality, but for you to experience it more fully. Yeah? But there's one more step for us who love Jesus and are wanting to live in the reality of being loved by Jesus. And it's this. Uh, I am uh, a white, cisgender, 
queer woman, gay woman, who's very highly educated. And uh, I can tell you that I have experienced some fun things in my life because of being a woman. There are times when my voice has been shut down, when I have not been allowed to speak because I'm a woman. There's been times when I have not been able to access places because as a woman uh, in that particular place, I had to dress a certain way in order to get access. So there are times in my life when because of my gender, I have been denied access to places. I've been told to shut up and sit down or to get out of this area. There have been times as a gay woman that I've been excluded. And I know so many of you guys get this. I've been the person where I'm going into church on a Sunday morning and the elders are standing at the door saying, look at that woman, she has an evil spirit in her. I've been that woman whose employers get emails saying, Karen Pack is a lesbian and that's demonic and you need to publicly denounce her. I've experienced that and it hurts. It's a little rough. But I'm also a white woman. And I have also experienced, excuse me, madam, you don't have to wait in line. Come to the front of the queue when I'm waiting to get into a country that is filled with people who are not the same colour as me, and yet because I'm white, I'm brought to the front of the queue past literally hundreds of people and allowed to go through first just because of the colour of my skin. That's privilege. I go to some places where, because of the letters after my name, because of the things that I'm involved in, I get ushered through doors and into places that the public is not allowed to go. Like literally doors open for me, come in here. No, no, not you, but you can come in. I've kind of experienced both sides. And this is what I'm learning. I have full access into the presence of God, exactly who as, who I, as who I am. Jesus has made that access entirely possible. And I get to experience that and live in the reality that I start loved and I'm already acceptable and I'm already loved. But there is a whole bunch of people who don't know that yet. There is a whole bunch of people who don't understand the access that they have. There is a whole bunch of people who still have doors slammed in their, in their face, whether it be in churches, whether it be in educational institutions, whether it be wherever the case might be. And part of my role as a Christian is to use the privilege that I have, not to lord it over other people, but to hold the door open for others and go, actually, we go through this together because we share equal value. Does that make sense? It's about access and it's about privilege. And it's about the reality that we're all on an equal footing. And we need to understand that Jesus has given all of us access into the very presence of God, has proclaimed significance and worth and infinite value over our lives. And if we're to walk in the truth of that, we now need to make it our mission to hold the door open for others in a whole bunch of ways. Wherever you work and whatever you do, there are ways for you to do that for other people.
I like to say that I don't really believe in full-time ministry as like pastors and priests and stuff like that, like ministry as a vocation of certain people. I'm someone who believes in full-time locational ministry. And that means that I believe that every single Christian is in ministry in whatever location you happen to be in. So whether you're at uni or in cabaret or in the theatre or hairdressing or accounting or whatever the case you might whatever the case might be for you, you are in full-time ministry in your location because you have an opportunity to declare to others that they start loved and that if they accept it, they can have access into the very presence of God, that there is nothing that is denied to them because of their inherent value. And that is what Jesus is trying to proclaim to us. We have an all-access pass with no limitations. And because of that, I need to be using my privilege and my access to make the way for others. Does that make sense? We're going to celebrate communion now. Because communion actually harks back, like it's, it's another one of those using the symbols of what they had at the time to try to proclaim an awesome truth. And communion is meant to be reminding us of this, that because of what Jesus has done and because of who Jesus is, we have access to God. That's why Jesus said, this, this bread, it's my body, it's given for you. And this blood, it's the blood of the new covenant. It gives you access to the very presence of God. It's a symbolic reminder. And so today, as we take communion, Sammy's going to sing a song for us. And I would like us to remember, as we go to take communion, that this is a symbol of the access that we have to God. And as we sit, I'm actually going to ask you to wait so that we can all take it together. Because as we take it, I want us to remember that we all have equal access, that there's no one that's privileged over anyone else, but that all of us have access together. Let's pray as Sammy comes up. Jesus, I want to thank you for your sacrifice for us. I want to thank you that by one sacrifice, you have made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I want to thank you that we do not stand in judgment anymore, that we do not need to stand in fear, that we don't don't need to wonder if we're welcome in your presence because you have declared us to be perfect in your sight. And now we're being made holy. Lord, we are learning what that means. We're learning to live in that reality. And so I pray that you would teach us about the access that we have to you that you would teach us about the fact that we are fully and completely and wholly loved. And Lord, I pray that you would show us the ways that we can show other people their access as well. Show us the ways that we can use our privilege for the good of others. Show us the ways that we can surrender our rights in order to see others walk into the fullness of theirs. Lord Jesus, let us never ever be people who set up boundaries and walls and courts and gates to keep people out. But let us follow your example in flinging the doors wide open and declaring all are welcome here. As we take communion, let us remember that again together, that you have made the the way open for us 
and it's for us to walk into it. In Jesus' name, amen.